All right, folks, if you are new with us and uh, are just kind of finding or discovering, or maybe you've been wandering through uh, the series of podcasts that I did sometime back as I was reading a portion, or actually reading all of my book, Authority, Headship, and Family Structure, According to Moses, I'd like to welcome you. I took a long sabbatical hiatus, something or other, uh, but uh, getting back to it here, my plan to uh, push on through and finish this up. Uh, fantastic. Uh, well, that's, I guess, my personal <laughs> not my personal opinion. Good book, but it's a long one. And uh, we're about 118 pages in with about another 300 to go. Um, available on Amazon.com as uh, Authority, Headship, and Family Structure According to Moses. And it is uh, by Pete Peter Rambo, Peter G. Rambo Sr. In this segment, we're going to be looking at the portion of Exodus chapters 10, verse 1 through 13, verse 16. And the title of this particular Torah portion is Bow. And um, so we, we are walking through what Scripture has to say with regards to authority, headship, and family structure, and particularly doing that within the, uh, the structural confines of, or not confines, but uh, that the, the structure of the Torah reading cycle. So here we go. Bo, meaning go, is a portion loaded with topics related to headship, patriarchy, family structure, and the role of the father. We are going to dive into topics and issues such as firstborn, circumcision, and sojourners, as well as to whom most commandments are written. So buckle up and let's dig in. Up to this point in the Torah, we have seen some importance placed on firstborns, but we have not had a strong indication of how very seriously uh, Elohim, or God, takes this role and position. Certainly, we have seen the wrestling between Jacob and Esau, as well as the Reuben, Judah, Joseph unfolding of Israel's family, and have sensed something important about this position. But it's not until this portion that the firstborn position really becomes uh, or comes to be highlighted. Exodus chapter 11. Now Yahweh said to Moshe, One more plague, and I will bring on Perot and on Mitzrayim, or Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out from here completely. Speak now in the hearing of people that each man ask from his neighbor and each woman from her neighbor for articles of silver and articles of gold. Yahweh gave the people favor in the sight of Mitzrayim. Furthermore, the man, Moshe, was very greatly esteemed in the land of Mitzrayim in the sight of Perot's servants and in the sight of the people. Moshe said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Mitzrayim, and all the firstborn of the land of Mitzrayim shall die, from the firstborn of Perot who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Mitzrayim, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But against any of the sons of Israel, a dog will not even bark, whether against man or beast, that you may understand how Yahweh makes a distinction between Mitzrayim and Israel. 
All these your servants will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The role of the firstborn, besides being the strength of a man's seed, is also a priestly role. The fullness of this role is carried out by the firstborn of all creation, Yeshua. But on a smaller scale, it's a significant intercessory position in each family, as we will see later in this portion. A quick search for primogenitor, meaning firstborn, led me to a terrific explanation at this website. And uh, the link is supplied here in the text, but it's uh, at helpmewithbiblestudy.org forward slash 10 Christian living forward slash family firstborn law of primogeniture. And uh, if you're not familiar with primogeniture, of course, we're going to explain it a little bit here. But the the word is P-R-I-M-O-G-E-N-I-T-U-R-E. And this uh, taken from that site, it's an extended quote that I have here in my book. So I will tell you when this quote is over. It says, what is the significance of understanding the biblical term firstborn to our culture today? Is it a chauvinistic cultural practice with no relevance to today? The Bible has made distinctions between firstborn and younger brothers, Jews and Gentiles, and men and women. How does understanding the concept of firstborn help us understand our roles in serving God? Because God places a significance on the firstborn, ancient Near East culture has believed that the firstborn human or animal has the purest and strongest blood, and thus were considered the best representatives of their race. The lifespan of Adam and the subsequently shorter lifespan of his descendants provide an example for the basis of this belief. Within ancient Near East culture, the term firstborn anoints the oldest son with the assignment of special privileges and responsibilities. He was second to his father and had authority over his younger siblings. Upon the death of his father, he was entitled to the birthright, which was a double portion of the estate among his brothers and leadership of the family. As new head and spiritual leader of the home, the firstborn cared for his mother until her death and provided for his unmarried sisters until their marriage. The birthright, however, can be lost or sold as exemplified by the passing of the Abrahamic covenant to Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Genesis 21, 5 through 10, 25, 29 to 34, and 48, 3 through 5. Inheritance rights became a difficult issue in the case of multiple wives, and God prescribed a law to protect the rights of the firstborn. Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17. This law revealed God's view of firstborns, aside from the Abrahamic covenant, may explain God's love for Hagar. Genesis 21, verses 10 through 21. While the younger brother, uh, younger brothers of a family may not be the firstborn, they, be- they became the head and spiritual leader of their respective families when they married and left the home. And they would have the privilege to pass on their birthright to a son. Thus, all males, firstborn or not, would ultimately be the priest and leader of his own family. This responsibility is why God decreed that all males be circumcised as part of the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 17, 9 through 14. 
It is also the reason why all males must appear before the Lord three times a year as part of the Mosaic Covenant to commemorate the Passover meal and the first seven days of the Exodus, Feast of Unleavened Bread. Israel's wandering in the wilderness, the Feast of Tabernacles, or in-gathering, and the first harvest in the Promised Land, the Feast of Firstfruits, Exodus 23, 14-27. With the Mosaic Covenant, God selected the firstborn Hebrew as a testimony and remembrance of his divinity and power. As a remembrance of his deliverance from Egypt by the uh, destruction of a special uh, by the destruction of Egypt's firstborn and the preservation of Israel's firstborn, God placed a special claim on the firstborn of each Hebrew family's male. Animals and plants, and giving of the firstborn was symbolic of giving back what was his. Exodus 13, 11 to 15, Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 23, and Numbers 8, 14 through 19. Because all firstborns were in God's possession, it was necessary for a family to buy back or redeem the firstborn infant from God for five shekels, which was given to the priest when the infant was one month old. Numbers chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Yet, while God claimed the firstborn Hebrew male of each family as his own, they were not dedicated to him. Instead, he took the men of the tribe of Levi as their representative and dedicated them to the service of the tabernacle and to assist the, priest, uh, the priests uh, um, Aaron and his sons. Numbers 3, 5 through 9, 40 through 51, and Numbers 8. 14 through 19. Often the term firstborn is used figuratively and expresses God's dear affection for an individual king or group of people who enjoy a special relationship with him and receive the benefits of an heir. In this sense, while David was the youngest of eight sons, 1 Samuel 16, 7 through 12, God considered King David as a firstborn because he was the king of his chosen firstborn nation, Psalm 89, 27. And in affirmation, the unconditional Davidic covenant was made. Similarly, the nation of Israel was chosen as God's firstborn among nations, Exodus 4.22. The nation of Israel was to be a nation of priests and represented God's means of bringing earth his blessings and message of salvation, Exodus 19.6. It was born out of the New Testament, or this was born out of the New Testament when the Mosaic covenant was still in force. Jesus selected 12 Jewish men as disciples and prepared them for spiritual leadership. The number referred to the 12 tribes of Israel, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 through 28. While Jesus ministered to many Gentiles, he considered the Hebrews as a priority and preference, Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 6, 10, 5 through 6, 15, 21 to 28, Mark 7, 24 to 30, and Romans 1, 16. Jesus came to fulfill the messianic prophecy that only Jews would recognize Matthew 5:17 through 20, Matthew 26:52 to 56, Luke chapter 4, 21, um, 14 to 21, Luke 24, 14, 48, John 5. Uh, a lot of references in this, but I'm going to I'm going to trim some of them out as we go. I, if you want to get all of those, obviously you can you can pick up the book and it'll be here or you can go search for this online. 
but continuing, he says, only Jews would understand the significance of the Passover lamb and the timing of the crucifixion during the Passover meal. The Jews were chosen not to be honored, but to be God's servants. God chose Abraham and his descendants to bless him with an unconditional covenant. Genesis 12 and Deuteronomy 14, Amos 3, God had a priority on the man Abraham and his descendants. The Jews received the law first, had the prophets, had the knowledge of the one true God, and were the guardians of the Old Testament. God had a priority on Hebrew men who were entrusted to know and teach the law. God intended Jesus to come as a Jew and lead the nation of Jews as the means and mission to save the world. Salvation would come from the Jews. Romans 9, Matthew 10, John 4, Romans 11. Despite the Jews' rejection of Jesus Christ, God's priority on the nation of Israel was for the benefit of the world. And this priority did not end when Jesus came. Jews will receive either final judgment and blessings before the Gentiles, Romans 2 and Luke 12, but while God has a priority, the believing Jew is no more righteous than the believing Gentile, and none are saved except through faith in Jesus, Romans 3 and chapter 10. Jesus Christ was literally the firstborn of God and the Virgin Mary, Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, John chapter 3. However, his birth did not mark his origin in time, but only his appearance as a man. As part of the triune God, Jesus Christ is eternal and pre-existed before and participated in creation, John chapter 1. He has neither a beginning nor an end. He exists outside any human concept of time. Yet his birth as a human being, an incarnate form of God, qualified him for receiving the birthright as the firstborn. While ontologically equal with God the Father, Jesus Christ functioned as the firstborn among all Christians. And while God predestined Christians to be with him and conformed to the image of his Son, he intended all Christians to have an intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ as younger siblings would have with an older brother, Romans chapter 8. Jesus Christ is the firstborn from among the dead, the first human being to be resurrected from the dead and reside in heaven. Preeminent sovereign over everything, including death, Jesus Christ the firstborn is exalted and glorified in heaven by angels and resurrected saints. Colossians 1, 13-18, Hebrews 1, 6, Revelation 1, 5. As a consequence of Jesus Christ's redeeming work, Gentiles are considered adopted sons and sharing in the spiritual inheritance as heirs to God's promise, Galatians 4, Hebrews 12, Romans 8, Galatians 3. In this context, adoption entitles one the privilege of receiving an inheritance. Roman customs, which influenced the first century church, mandated that the one adopting had to be male and the one being adopted had to be independent and capable of agreeing to the adoption. According to Roman law, the adopted person was considered as being born again into the new family. Paul is the only New Testament writer to use the term adoption in this context, Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 23, and 9, 4. Is there any evidence that Jesus explicitly understood his role as the firstborn? During the crucifixion, Jesus passes on his responsibility for the care of his mother to his disciple John, not to his brother. He, then he said to the disciples, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own 
or said it said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her into his own household john chapter 19 verse 27. it's important to recognize god's emphasis on the role of the firstborn and males the mistaken notion that this is culturally determined ignores the bible and introduces a huge misunderstanding of god's intended role for men and women Worse, it de-emphasizes and perhaps intentionally confuses the priestly responsibility that men have for their families and church. And that is the end of the quote. That was a long quote, and though I might quibble with the author on several finer points of understanding, like the relationship between Jew and non-Jew, as well as our ongoing responsibility to the Torah, the above quote gives a broad view of the firstborn throughout Scripture and highlights the significance even in our day. We see, therefore, that by killing the Egyptian firstborns, God is judging the entire religious and social system. At the same time, we will see him specifically sanctify and set apart for himself the firstborn among Israel, both man and animal, in this portion. Exodus chapter 13 then Yahweh spoke to Moshe, saying, Sanctify to me, or set apart to me, every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Moshe said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Mitzrayim, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, Yahweh brought you out from this place. A second and significant topic that we want to take up is to whom the commandments are given and whose responsibility is it to see that they are properly instructed and carried out. This seems an odd place to do so. However, having just considered the role of the firstborn and in fact that a very unusual rendering of a command occurs in this portion, we will take up this challenge. To do so, I will quote extensively from two articles previously published in the Restoring Kol Israel series on natsav.com, N-A-T-S-A-B.com. And here is the relevant verse that opens our discussion. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. So the question is, what does Ben, Strong's H1121, mean in Hebrew? Ben or B'nai Israel is commonly used in the opening of a passage when Moshe is delivering the Torah. Uh, ben is, uh, is in the masculine form, and some versions commonly translate it as children, others translate it as sons. Leviticus 12.2 is a specific example. Uh, KJV translates Ben as children. The NASB translates Ben as sons. It seems to me that the men are being addressed specifically throughout the Torah when commands are delivered by Yah via Moshe. I understand that based on the context, we apply this to all the people, and I think it's appropriate to do just that. I also understand that it holds to the Hebrew language structure to use the masculine form, even when the group being addressed is mixed, is a mixed audience. However, there is a specific example where Yah uses a different word to address the entire assembly, 
when he is addressing the women, children, slaves, and foreigners, as well as the men when giving a commandment. This is actually quite exciting, so stick with me here. I believe that Yah is intentional when he uses this particular masculine word. I do believe there were women and children also present when Moshe spoke the Torah to the men, and I believe the commands apply to them as well. I, however, do not believe the women and children were specifically being spoken to. Consider that it was Adam who was held accountable for Hava, or Eve's, actions. By learning and walking properly the roles Yah has assigned us, men should be avoiding the sin of Adam, not being the head, and women should avoid the sin of Hava, not being in submission to her husband. There are very few instances where Yah speaks directly to women in Torah. Even in Leviticus 12 and 15, the men were addressed concerning the specifics about women's menstruation, childbirth, and such. It is therefore the responsibility of the men to ensure those commands are carried out under their headship. To be clear, Yah is delivering these commands through Moshe to the men of the households, and it's the man's responsibility to teach them and discern correct application for his women. And it is the man's responsibility to correct her or them accordingly. I would say that Yah is a gentleman, and this is uh, another example, such as Numbers 30, which we previously addressed, where Yah maintains the hierarchy and literally does not circumvent his authority given to the given to the woman's head. What then is this word? It is Edah. Exodus chapter 12, speak to all the Edah, or congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to the father's household, a lamb for each household. It, the, the word Edah, Strong's 5712, is appropriately translated as congregation or assembly. I did a little digging, and I cannot find another Torah command addressed specifically to the whole congregation of Israel. The only other time the word Edah is used is in the opening address of a command in Leviticus 19.2, and it says the congregation or the Edah of the sons of Israel. So it still seems to be a specific address to the men. Based on what I just pointed out, the only context where Yah bypasses his authority structure and delivers a command directly to all of the assembly, including men, women, children, slaves, and foreigners, is in the context of the first Passover. And the ongoing observance of the Passover, which is a picture of the ultimate salvation in Yeshua himself. All other matters are directly delivered to the men. Salvation appears to be the only issue that man does not have direct authority over his woman or women. All these manner of life commands are given following the hierarchy through the headship of the man. We know what... Uh, we know that elsewhere, Paul makes it very clear that women are to be subject to their husbands in everything. Ephesians chapter 5. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. This is a very good reason why every woman should be under headship. It is a place of protection for her. 
we as men need to be prepared to step up and provide what God, uh, step up and provide that love, headship, guidance, and correction for whatever woman or women that Yah puts in our lives. And to the degree that he leads us to do so, ladies, I ask you, are you walking this out in submission to your head or your man? Those of you who are single, are you seeking to come under the headship of a man, preferably a righteous man? What does Paul say should be happening for widows under the age of 60? 1 Timothy 5 tells us that she should uh, be seeking a head. Ladies who are divorced need to be thinking long and hard about what Numbers 30 verse 9 has to say, putting them in the same status as widows. Scripture clearly indicates that it is best if all single ladies seek to be under the headship of a man. Will we walk out what Scripture teaches, or will we continue to be ruled by our cultural biases and fear of men? Remember this first Passover was open to all who would choose to follow Yah, and some foreigners did choose to follow. Exodus 12, 38 and 48, Paul references them as Greeks, mentions a mixed multitude and strangers. Slaves are referenced as well in Exodus 12, verse 44. For clarity's sake, what I'm pointing out is that Paul grasped the fact that salvation is open to all and no one has authority over another with regard to the acceptance of salvation. Just as Exodus 12 makes clear that Passover is open to all, Paul points out that Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, and free have equal status in Messiah as it pertains to salvation. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So why did Paul mention Abraham and the promise here in this context? How does this fit in with Passover? And what is the relationship with belonging to Messiah? Exodus chapter 12, verses 47 through 49, all the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised and, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a land, native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. That's the word congregation, edah, again. This time in direct connection to the stranger, Greek, who chooses to reverence or sojourns, reverence Yah and partake of Passover, salvation, redemption. Did you notice the command is for circumcision? What is the eternal sign of the covenant made with Abraham? Genesis 17, 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. The Apostle Paul upheld and taught the Torah. He did not attempt to add to it or take away from it. 
in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29, he is expounding on Exodus chapter 12 and giving us the truth from the Torah with regards to salvation and Passover. He is further tying it all back to the covenant with Abraham. Paul is remaining consistent with his teaching, Titus chapter 2, 9, that a bond slave is to be subject to their master. He is remaining consistent with himself, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and the Torah, teaching that upon entering into salvation, all become part of the assembly or the body. He is not contradicting himself, Ephesians chapter 5, or the Torah, and teaching some sort of false egalitarianism as it regards the authority structure laid out consistently throughout the scriptures and expounded by himself in 1 Corinthians 11, which is Yah, Messiah, man, woman. And that is the end of the first article. In a subsequent article, I clarified and doubled down on the assertion that most all commands apart from this very interesting verse in Exodus chapter 12 concerning Passover or Pesach are given to men for the purpose of implementing them in their families and leading as Adam didn't the domain God has entrusted to them. Here the article is in its entirety demonstrating why this verse is so significant regarding its con uh, connection to Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 and salvation through Yeshua available to each of us while maintaining the God-ordained order of things. A week ago in our post titled Re uh, Restoring Kol Israel, No More Male or Female, we made a huge statement that many may have glossed over. Because it's so monumental, we need to go back and, paw, and parse it with implications spelled out. Here is the quote. To be clear, Yah is delivering these commands through Moses to the men of the households, and it's the man's responsibility to teach them and discern correct application for his women. As demonstrated earlier in the cited post, the Torah commands over and over as written by Yahweh to Moshe, are specifically addressed to the men. While this understanding is not in conflict with most of Orthodox Judaism, it is a decided cut against the Western egalitarian and feminism that has overrun the church. To review a couple things very quickly, our heart's desire is to see Kol Israel, all 12, technically 13 tribes restored. That cannot happen unless the most basic building block is restored. That building block is the man, and if he has one, his family. Call it what you will, manhood, masculinity, patriarchy, etc. The simple fact is that the structure of a nation cannot be assembled from broken or improperly functioning family building blocks. The basis of the entire structure that Yah designed and implemented is focused on the man leading his family. It began in Gan Eden with Adam and Chava. Adam was given headship and the direct command of Yah. It was Adam's responsibility to lead and correct Chava, which he did not do. His failure is what led to the fall of mankind, at that time entirely contained in his loins. He chose to follow Chava instead of correcting and leading her. In a sense, from that point forward, we are each Adams with the responsibility to follow, uh, to follow Yah, obey his command, and, and lead our families. 
The entire structure instituted before the fall is patriarchal, and the adversary is constantly railing against it. His very first attack was against the woman, and he continues to this day with that line of assault, among others. Restoring patriarchy and walking in the ways of Yah is not easy because it demands buying into the Torah at a deeper level than simply attending Shabbat or keeping the feast. It demands that men step up and be the men. Yah calls us to be, and it requires women to catch the vision of restoration and their role as helpers who enable their head to be obedient to Yah. In essence, both men and women must reject the roles imposed by the world and embrace the roles defined in Scripture. So, as demonstrated in our previous post, the commandments are written specifically to the men who then have the responsibility to teach them and see them carried out by those under their, their headship and authority. See how beautiful and challenging this is? The man has to do the work of Adam and the woman has to do the work of Chava. Let's break down the implications for the different people in this structure. Our categories are married men, single men married women, and single women, as well as children. So for married men, a married man is to be vested in building a, quote, house. He is therefore the head that is responsible before Yah for the visions, leadership, instruction, obedience, and well-being of his house. He should know and be walking well with the commandments and should be a proven leader and, and provider. And uh, there's a link in that original article. You can find it on notsav.com um, with more details. We talk about a single man. A single man who aspires to be the head of a house is to be learning. He should be growing in Torah, learning and growing under the tutelage of his own father, as well as other qualified men in the community around him. He should be intentionally building, growing a business or career that can support his future family. Dating or chasing girls is not what a single man is focused on. In fact, if he is, he is not yet mature. Hormones may be working, but his brain is not. The next category we'll look at is married women. A married woman will seek to be assimilated to her husband. She understands his vision and calling and asks how she can help him fulfill it. She builds her house and is a blessing to him every day of her life. She is not in competition with him, nor does she undermine him. She is a witness and ambassador into the community and represents him well at all times. And that also has more details at a link. Single women. A single woman is under the headship and authority of her father. In the case of an older woman, like widows or divorcees, they should be under the headship of a man, whether father, brother, or elder in the community, until such time as they are remarried. Simply, there is not a Torah allowance for uncovered women in the community. The single woman should be learning how to be a wife and build her master's house. She is learning submission and assimilation as well as all of the skills necessary to operate a home and rear children. And the last category is children. The very young, quote, singles are growing in wisdom and knowledge and schooling, Torah and life skills. Little boys should be at the beginning stages of learning skills and wise decision making. 
Uh, they should be following dad around and exploring interests to discern gifts and possible business career paths. Little girls should be learning the basics of managing a home and performing the tasks necessary to care for a family. She should also be learning how to be a helpmeet that relates properly to leadership and authority. The world will find these things to be laughable at best, abhorrent at worst. The adversary desires rebellion and any attack against Yah's created order is a, quote, good day. Conversely, learning and walking in Yah's design for family and personal roles leads to blessing and ultimately to restoration. This then is the wisdom, is the vision every Torah observant person, particularly non-Jew, needs to grasp to speed the redemption of the kingdom. Anything short of getting the most basic building blocks, man and family correct, is going to fail. I challenge every reader to ponder deeply what it means to walk in the ways of the king. Are we willing to step up and be the generation that gets it right, or do we continue to follow the ways of the world? Men? Women? Where are you, what, what are you doing? How are you working toward the redemption? So that was the end of that article. In studying the Torah portion, or this Torah portion, most will quickly gloss over the specific nature of the Passover command being given to the whole congregation, the Edah. However, its uniqueness and obvious connection to Galatians chapter 3.28 cannot be overstated. Revealed here is the monumental fact that all can directly approach God through his prescribed way, the Messiah pictured in the Passover. Equally important is the clear absence of similar direct command to women and or children in the rest of the Torah. The Torah is read to the whole congregation in Deuteronomy chapter 29 verses 10 through 15. And the, cov and the covenant is made with the whole congregation, both present and future. But the performance and responsibility for implementation is given to the men and at points specifically to the Levites. We must understand this uh, point and carry it forward as it is critical to the forming of a nation and having that nation function as God ordained, a patriarchal tribal nation with the power and authority centered in the home, imaged and performed by, by the man. Remember 1 Corinthians 11.3, God, Messiah, man, woman. Within the Passover commands, there are some specific commands given to the heads of household and to the elders. Note that the role of elders and sons, or note the role of elders and sons in this passage. Exodus chapter 12, verse 21 and following. Then Moshe called for all of the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood which is in the basin, apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the uh, lintel and the two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. When you enter the land which Yahweh will give you, as he promised, you shall enter 
uh, you shall observe this right. And when your sons say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as Yahweh had commanded Moshe and Aharon, so they did. Our point is that the redemption of Passover was for every member of Israel as pictured in Messiah. The elders and the heads of households were specifically tasked with the priestly duties of taking and preparing the lamb and of telling their sons. Apparently, the pre or again, the priestly role of instruction falls on the men and is always passed father to son. In the instruction God gives to Moses, there are additional specific, uh, specifics concerning how to handle a sojourner or a ger. It is important to note that a clear distinction is made between a sojourner and the various other stations of men, whether foreigner or slave or similar. The Ger is one who is joining himself and his whole house to Israel. Note that he and all the males in his house under his headship are to be circumcised. Clearly, the head is making the decision for the family, and all males in the family follow in faith by taking the sign of the covenant. Is that not what happened with Abraham? And we also see that, well, I guess uh, looking forward in my notes, I, uh, or what, what I wrote here, I've got the next piece too. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, 43. Yahweh said to Moshe and Aharon, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money. After you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Several passages should come to mind when reading that the Gur and all his males are to be circumcised. An example is, and this was the one I was thinking of, it came to my mind earlier, just a second ago, Acts chapter 16, verses 25 and following. But after midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there, were, there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in uh, Adonai Yeshua, or the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of Yahweh to him, together with all who were in the house. 
And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Notice that the man's salvation seems to somehow be extended into his family, just as the Gur's whole house. The requirement for the Gur and all his males to be circumcised introduces another thought as well. While I have not sorted this one out entirely, I have recently noticed something interesting regarding headship and the role of the father as it relates to the covenants, as it relates to covenants with God. Males are required to be circumcised, but not females. Yet both may approach the Passover table. Is it because it is assumed that the females are under the headship of their respective males and therefore subject to his covenant? Consider several details. God's covenant with Abraham was extended to all of Abraham's descendants who are circumcised. When a man is circumcised, there is a show of blood and an alteration of the flesh. When a virgin is taken and mastered, she is uh, permanently in covenant with the man, and there is a show of blood and a permanent change in the flesh. Because we understand the authority structure to be clearly defined in 1 Corinthians 11.3 as God, Messiah, man, woman, then it stands to reason the sign of the covenant with Abraham is a sign between the Messiah and his men, where the one, women fall under the headship of a man under the Messiah's authority. There was no expectation of an uncovered woman coming to the Passover table. Every woman present would be under the headship of a man there, whether her father, husband, or a man to whom she answered, i.e. master, elder, etc. I need to test this, this further, but it makes sense. It makes perfect sense and fits exactly into the paradigm we continue to consistently see in the scriptures. As a side note, we need to circumcise the flesh as it relates to Passover. As a side note, the need to circumcise the flesh as it relates to Passover is clear from the commands of Moses in this portion. We later understand circumcision of the heart is of paramount importance, but the flesh must not be ignored. To that end, it is wise for every man who belongs to Abraham to be considered to consider very carefully the need to take on this most important sign at the point that they were ready and convicted. The scriptures seem very clear on the matter. Within your study of circumcision, consider that in the second temple period, Paul, the term circumcision, I put that in quotes, as in the party of the circumcision, was a shorthand way of referring to those who chose to walk out the complete rabbinic halakha, or the oral traditions, and the cutting of the flesh was only a small part of their definition for circumcision. It is this requirement to keep the oral law that Paul stood against, not the physical sign as clearly commanded by Moses. Our final thought has to do with the consecration, the setting apart of the firstborn sons and animals. Exodus chapter 13. Then Yahweh spoke to Moshe saying, Sanctify to me or set apart to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. You shall tell your son on that day saying, It is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Mitzrayim. 
and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the Torah of Yahweh may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand Yahweh brought you out of Mitzrayim. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Now when Yahweh brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to Yahweh the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to Yahweh, but every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in times to come, saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand Yahweh brought us out of Mitzrayim from the house of slavery. It came about when Perot was stubborn about letting us go that Yahweh killed every firstborn in the land of Mitzrayim, but the firstborn of man, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to Yahweh the males, the firstborn offering of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons. I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand Yahweh brought us out of Mitzrayim. The firstborn is to be redeemed to Yahweh, and he is to serve as a sign that God redeems his own firstborn, Israel. And so there is the end of that segment, Bo. Another long, long passage. And so, excellent, good stuff. The, uh, the, the big challenging thought here is that um, Yahweh gave the commandments to men, and it's the man's responsibility, like Adam, to then convey that to his wife or his women, wife, uh, wives, daughter, daughters, whatever, and... Uh, through that, fulfill in a way the role of Adam and to be the head and, uh, and act in a priestly mediatorial role for his family as he guides them to Messiah. So fantastic. Shabbat Shalom.